shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. Paramhansa Yogananda showed by his own example that prayer is a power, provided we believe deeply in that power. When our thoughts and feelings are strongly focused and then united in growing awareness to the divine presence within, they can bring even even seemingly unrealistic wishes to fulfillment. When Paramhansa Yogananda was in charge of his school in Ranchi, India, he took the boys on occasional outings to the surrounding countryside. There was a waterfall not far away, he told Swami Kriyananda, where I took them sometimes. It was dangerous to cross there, but I would cry out to the boys, Do you believe in God? Yes, they would shout back enthusiastically. And so we always crossed in safety. Years later, I'd gone to America. One of the teachers tried to do the same thing, but he lacked spiritual power. One of the boys slipped on a rock and was drowned. Thus the master explained, belief in known alone is not enough. It must be united to one-pointed awareness, which leads to self-realization. The Bhagavad Gita in the sixth chapter underscores the necessity for such one-pointed concentration. Whenever the mind, fickle and restless, wanders off from its concentration, let the meditating yogi withdraw it resolutely, spurning every distraction, no matter how alluring, and bring it back again and again under the control of the self. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. like to join Lisa in welcoming you on this glorious autumn day. Um, We always start with a reading from Whispers from Eternity written by Yogananda, a book of prayers and poems. This particular prayer that I'm going to read, Prayer at Eventide, is actually read by Yogananda on one of his CDs. And I've heard it so many times that I'm going to actually try to sound a little bit like Yogananda. (laughs) (laughs) The day is done. Refreshed and sanctified with the sunshine of the day, I pass through the portals of evening, dimly adorned with faint stars, to enter into the temple of silence and worship thee. I worship thy spirit, of approaching calmness. What prayers can I offer? For I have no words to offer thee. I shall light a little fire of devotion on the altar of my soul. Will that light suffice to bring thee into my dark temple, my dimly lighted temple, dark with my ignorance? Come, I crave I yearn for thee. Well, this week's 
reading on prayer and faith was something I found very, very moving and powerful. And I hope I can communicate it to you today. Um, when I think about prayer and I think about faith, the story that comes to mind, and some of you know it, but every time I hear it, it focuses me. And I will share it with you. Uh, it's from the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata, for those who don't know, is the great epic from India, of which the Bhagavad Gita is one part of it. And the Mahabharata is a rousing tale of uh, battles between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. But the key thing to the Mahabharata to understand, to make it really thrilling, and is that all of those characters in the Mahabharata represent some part of our own mind. The forces of darkness are the force of material desire within us that pulls us toward delusion. And the forces of light, the forces of darkness are called the Kauravas. Kauravas. And the forces of darkness are called, uh, the forces of light are called, forces of darkness are the Kauravas. The forces of light are the Pandavas. And the forces of light stand for each of the chakras that are magnetizing our energy inward to the spine and to the brain. And they're the forces pulling us toward enlightenment. And the battle that is being fought is the battle over the body. Who will rule us? Material desire or the desire for God, the desire for truth. And I won't go into a long story of the Mahabharata. You have to, at some point, hear Gyandav do the Mahabharata storytelling. And I encourage you to look for a little book in the boutique where he writes about who all the characters are, because it just makes the story so fascinating. But in this one scene, the uh, Kauravas have decided to play a game of dice with the Pandavas. And it's all rigged so that the oldest brother of the Pandavas, the most, the greatest representative of Dharma and truth, that he will lose. And he gambles, and he gets caught by the game of gambling, and he gambles away his entire kingdom. And then in an effort to win back everything before it, he has to keep gambling one more time to see if he can win everything else back. He gambles away each of his brothers. And then he gambles away himself. It's, it's a... It's a fascinating part of the book, I have to tell you. But finally, he gambles, he's gambled away himself, he has nothing else to gamble. He gambles away his wife. Now his wife, Draupadi, is actually the wife of all five brothers. Because she represents Kundalini power. Kundalini is the, the power that's coiled at the base of the spine, it, it pulls us away from enlightenment, but when through yoga, through devotion, we magnetize the kundalini upward, it comes up through the spine, it unites or marries each of the chakras, and it is the force that takes us to God-realization. So Draupadi is a, a woman of tremendous power. And she's now been gambled away. She's now the slave of the Kauravas. Well, she doesn't know this. She's down in the women's quarters. So one of the brothers, one of the Korova brothers goes down and with very insulting words and dragging her by the hair and just horrible behavior, he brings her into this room 
It's a huge room. It has the 100 Korava brothers who are her enemies. It has her five beloved husbands. And it has the elders of the kingdom. And now the Koravas are explaining to her that she's a slave, that she belongs to them, that her husbands have gambled her away. And she says, well, wait a minute. Did my husband gamble himself before he gambled me? Then he didn't have the right to gamble me. He, he didn't own me anymore. And she says, I stand before you all and ask, is this Dharma? And none of, no one will answer. Her husbands won't answer. The elders won't answer. They won't stand up for her. And so she's there, and all the Koravas are just taunting her. You know, you, forget it. You're a slave. You, do, you belong to us. Um, nobody will stand up for you. And then one of the very bright Korava brothers says, you know, you Pandavas don't own even the clothes on your body. Her will, her one-pointed faith to her God, who she worships as Krishna. She says, Krishna, you are my refuge. And such is her faith and such is her devotion that she one-pointedly stays in that place while the Korava brother is yanking her sari off of her. But what happens? A miracle. As he's pulling the sari, the sari keeps lengthening. And yard after yard of silk fabric is being pulled off of Draupadi, and she still remains beautifully clothed. And he's pulling and pulling and pulling. And literally, this mound of silk is there. He's finally just getting tired. <laughs> and he goes, and he sits down, and she stands there. And because of her focus and her power and her faith, the whole scene changes. I'm speeding up the story. You'll have to read the rest of it, and I really urge you to do it. But basically, because of what she did, because of her connection to God, everything changed. Her husbands were freed. Their whole kingdom was restored, and they left. Well, that image, to me, is what we're trying to do, isn't it? Because each one of us has Koravas around us, don't we? We have, maybe we have physical illness, we have financial difficulties, we have family responsibilities, we have self-doubt, we might be, have worries about the world uh, collapsing around us. There's lots of things around us saying, it's, it's lost, it's lost. You'll never get what you want. And despite everything pulling, what this reading is talking about and what the Mahabharata reading is about is we have to focus on our faith. We have to take that faith and say, this is what I believe. 100% of my energy I'm putting into this, my faith. And as I was reading this reading this week and reading other things by Master, I was thinking about these Four things, prayer. Prayer must be combined with faith, with love, and with willpower. We have to exercise our willpower so that when we pray, we're not just talking to God. 
It's not like Santa Claus and we're making a list and saying, I need this and I need that and I'll be really good and you know, give me everything on my list. It's not like that. We're, we're pouring our energy out to God. We're saying, this is needed. And, and I, with my love for you, with my willpower, with my faith in your power, I'm pouring all of this to you. What you do with it is not important. What's happening now is the importance of me giving this all to you and trusting in you completely and, and putting myself in your hands. So this is the thrilling part of this, this reading. And I wanted to add to this by something that Gyanamata wrote. I think I better do this. Um, Gyanamata, as you most of you know, was Yogananda's, one of her, his most advanced disciples, uh, uh, his most advanced woman disciple. And this is what she said about this process. She said, there is one answer to all of your questions. Turn to God and fill your consciousness with the realization of his perfection. Let your weakness be dissolved in the worshipful thought of his presence, of his strength. He knoweth your need before you speak and is more ready to give than you are to ask. When you meditate, turn away from everything but the one absorbing thought of his overshadowing presence. Turn away from everything but the one absorbing thought of his overshadowing presence. In this way, you will become receptive and healing will flow through body, mind, and soul. So she went on to describe a time when someone asked her for prayers and she said, well, this is what I do. She writes in her diary, this is what I do when I want to pray for someone. I turn my mind wholly to God. I feel connected to his presence. And in that presence, I lift up the person and I hold them in that presence. It's just what she's saying here. It's not about making lists. It's about connecting with the power and the presence and the love and putting all of yourself into it, putting all of your friends into it, putting all of the needs into it, whatever it is, using that force. I once, uh, when, when Swami created the purification ceremony, we were living, we were running the center in Palo Alto at the time. And we knew our congregation and we were doing this, and, but we'd never really done anything like this before. And so I said to Swami, what, uh, what are we supposed to be doing when we put our finger on, on someone's chest like that? And he said, let go of all of your thoughts about what you think the person needs and just ask that the power of God be there. He said, if you put your thoughts there, it actually stands in the way of that power. That power is intelligent. We need to let it flow through us. Master told another story that for me is similar to the story about Draupadi to kind of encapsulate this feeling of just put your energy out there. 
just put it out there. He said that when he was, I believe this was when he had his boys' school in Ranchi, India. He doesn't specific. But he said that one of his students had decided to leave. And he could tell that this was going to be a real disaster for this boy. And he used every, every type of reasoning he could to convince the boy not to go. But the boy was determined to leave. And Master said, well, what can I say? I, I have to let him go. But once he left, he said, no. He said, my love was too great. Not his attachment, but his love and his knowledge that God wanted that boy back. And so he sat under the banyan tree and he began to pray. He began to, began to focus on this boy and just put out the prayer, God has told me to command you to return. And he sat there, and you can imagine <clears throat> the force. No restless interference. No, what if this doesn't work? No, oh, poor boy. Nothing like that. God has commanded me to, God has told me to command you to return. And he sat there and he sat there. And finally, after some number of hours, he said, I felt a tingling and I knew there was a response. And the boy came back through the gate and he said, what is it? What is it? He said, wherever I was all day, no matter what I was doing, your face was in front of me. <laughs> what is it? And Master said, God wants you back. And the boy stayed. So the key thing was God told me. <laughs> it wasn't, I want him back. I think this should happen. What does God want? And if God wants it, I'm going to put 100% of my energy into it. This passage from the Bible that Lisa read, if you have faith, the size of a mustard seed. You can ask the mountain to be removed and it will be removed. A mustard seed, as you most of you know, is very, very small. And I was thinking about mustard seeds. <laughs> and I was thinking about the fact that everything has a seed. A animals have seeds, plants have seeds, human beings have seeds. So that in this very small, I don't know enough anatomy to tell you, or biology, if it's one cell or what it is, but it's very small. And in that is the, the intelligence and the power to, to replicate itself. I mean, isn't that, isn't that amazing? So... I'm picturing a situation, and here we have, over here, a garden. And if you've been a gardener, you know what this is like. You get all the weeds pulled out. It's nice, beautiful earth. You hoe the surface. You make it nice and smooth and this clean soil. And you place your little teeny, tiny mustard seed in that side. Now, over here, you have a very lush garden. This garden is the garden of all your doubts, all your self-doubts, all your wondering if you're worthy, if God is listening to you, if you can really achieve your goals. It's flowering and blooming, and it's 
growing. And you have over here your mustard seed. But which garden will grow? The garden that you water. So if you stop watering this lush garden of self-doubts, questions, problems, all that sort of stuff, you stop watering it, it won't take very long <clears throat> for it to just die. Eventually, it'll even shrivel up. Eventually, it'll even just blow away. Over here, you have the little tiny seed. And if you take that faith and you water it, it will grow. And it will grow into a beautiful flowering plant. It has power within it. It's up to us to water that faith that's very, very small. So how do we water our faith? Water our faith. How do we water our faith? First of all, we water our faith by thinking of God, by remembering that whatever it is that you want, that you think will make you happy, what you really want is you really want God's joy. That's what you want. <laughs> and everything else is part of that. And so we want to use the minutes in our life. Yogananda used to say the minutes are more important than the hours. Use the minutes of your life to be calling to God, to be making love to God, to be focusing your attention on how much you love God. You can be anywhere. Meditation, to have a meditation practice takes hours of your day or, or minutes. It doesn't really matter. It takes time. To have devotion doesn't take time. It's part of everything you do. So just putting out that thought to God as you are going through your day. This is what I want. I want you. So focusing on God. The second is to avoid negative thinking. Now this is really something. Um, because I was reading, again, I was reading Gyanamata's book this week, which is part of what made the week so inspiring. <clears throat> and near the end of the book, there's a letter to Gyanamata from Master. And as most of you know, Gyanamata had very, very serious, painful illnesses the last 20 years of her life. And at some point in that process, about 10 years into it, she must have written... Now, she, like Master said, she never had a single sin in her whole life, not even a thought of sin. So this must have been a very light letter that she wrote to him. Probably said something like, she'd been fighting these things and she, he'd been praying for her, and she might have said something like, you know, it's okay with me if, if I die. I don't have to stay. And he wrote her this letter, and he said... You know, you're at a very, very important part in your journey right now, and I am praying for you now. He said, don't tie my hands with negative thinking. Don't tie my hands with negative thinking. Now, I don't know about you, but um, for many of us, there's negative thinking in there. <laughs> And, it's, and it may be a little bit more than Gyanamata's negative thinking. And sometimes even that which we are praying for the most, we also have the most negative thinking about. And so what are we doing? We're tying Master's hands. Isn't that an important image? 
don't tie my hands. How can he help us if we are negative? We're put up a wall. He's going, okay, I'm working on that prayer. And then we go, I don't know if I can ever, this can, you know, and he's going, I, I was trying to help you. And now the wall is up. Don't tie my hands with negative thinking. So just keep pouring the energy into this positive, prayerful thought that we want. The third thing is exercise your faith. There were a couple of women who were, who Yogananda knew. They weren't disciples. And they were, um, they were supposedly great uh, devotees of God. And they, had a, they, they would never lock their car because they would say, Yogananda will, I mean, not Yogananda, God will take care of us. God will take care of us. And Yogananda said, you should be locking your car. And they said, where's your faith? And he said, we're not talking about faith. We're talking about carelessness. You're, you're being careless. Why should God protect you if you don't protect yourself? And so they said, oh no, God takes care of us. And so they left several thousand dollars of bonds and other valuables in their car, and they left the car unlocked, and thieves came and took everything. And Yogananda said, you can't presume on God. You have to do you have to follow common sense. So that's not exercise of faith, but exercise of faith is to put out the energy. Faith is, is what you've experienced so far of God. Belief is your, your hope that there is God. Belief is essential. Hope is essential because it's on that that our faith is developed. So we have the hope, we put out energy, we have an experience of God, and that builds our faith. And on that faith, that can't be shaken. Yogananda said, if you'd never tasted an orange, I could fool you about what an orange tastes like. But if you've tasted an orange, you know what an orange is. And, and there's no way to fool you on that. And it's the same with our faith. So we want to stretch our faith, exercise it. And finally, to be happy. Why? Because happiness is the quality of God. God is joy. As we focus on being happy, we align ourselves with God's power, and that helps to draw His presence into our life, into our prayers, into everything that we do. I wanted to end with a story that um, I saw as a newspaper account, uh, thumbtack to the bulletin board here at the Master's Market before it was even Master's Market, so it was a long time ago. And this is an interesting story. Um, I'm not sure if it's true, but I'll tell it to you. There was a priest in a, uh, a ca big Catholic church in, in a downtown area, and he had just taken over the church, so he, he was just getting to know the congregation and so forth. And he noticed that every day at noon, an old man would come into the church, walk from the back all the way to the altar. He would stand there for a couple of moments. He would turn and he would go away. And the priest watched day after day, and for several weeks the same thing was happening. And not missing a day or anything like that. And finally, the, the priest went up to him and he said, Sir, 
I hope you'll satisfy my curiosity. I, I just want to know what you do when you go up there. And he said, well, you see, I'm a simple person. And I don't really have much to say to God. So I just go and I just say, Jesus, it's Jim. <laughs> That's all I say. And the priest was very, very touched by this. And it continued on and continued on. And then there was a, a space of time of several days, a week. And the man didn't come. And the priest felt something has happened. And he went and he looked in various uh, hospitals and so forth. And it turned out that the man had actually been hit by a bus, had broken both legs and was in a hospital and his legs were up in a cast. And the priest felt bad about that and he went to visit him. And he walked in and this old man's face was just full of light. And he said, wow, you look very good for somebody who's just broken both legs. And the old man said, oh, it's because of my visitor. Every day at noon, he comes and he says, Jim, it's Jesus. So is this a true story? Is this a factual story? I don't know. It is a true story. It is a true story because Master tells us that God hears everything we say to him. He may not answer in the way that we want, but he's listening. And when the time is right, we'll know.